You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What up, everybody? Good day. Buenos dias. Buenos tardes. Buenos noches. Ni hao. Konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome to Abacabo Cafe. Thank you very much for joining us. I am your host, Jason Almi, and I want to give a big thanks and a tremendous shout out to Jay Pizzle for Shizzle for joining the Patriizzle, pa- Patriot, for joining the Patreon. I've embarrassed myself, and it's very early in the episode. For joining the Patreon, thank you very much, Jay Pizzle. If you want to be cool like Jay Pizzle, Hit up patreon.com slash teamalmy and uh, join us. I got tons of uh, cool stuff for the folks who do. Today, we are going to be talking about Kimagure Orange Road TV episode 19, entitled An Experience for Two, An Island of Forbidden Love. This episode originally aired on August the 10th of 1987. It was directed by Anno Takashi, which is the first episode for Anno to Direct. This episode was written by none other than our very own Tadada Kenji. This man is responsible for writing 10 of the first 20 episodes. It's incredible what this guy has done. We start with Natsu no Mirage as an insert song at the start of the episode. It's a great move for the final episode that's going to be featuring this song. It's a nice way to say adios. We see a beach loaded with people. Yusaku fishing with Kasuga. He must have loved that. We see Ayukawa and Shikaru jet skiing. We see Kasuga as he notices Ayukawa jet skiing. And we get a slow motion effect and a close up on Ayukawa. She's literally sparkling in the sunshine. And uh, it's really driving home to us as the viewer in a not so subtle way that uh, Kasuga is looking upon her very favorably. We don't get a similar shot of Shikaru looking equally glamorous on her jet ski. It's only Ayukawa that gets that kind of treatment from the filmmakers. This is the Ayukawa show now, guys. Since Shikaru and Ayukawa are wearing the same bathing suits as last episode, I am going to deduce that this is part of the same beach or the same vacation for them as in the last episode. So they're still 
at the beach from last episode. This is about as close to a two-parter as we're going to get in the main body of this series. Until we hit episode 47 and 48, this is the most cohesive pair of episodes, really, that we're going to see. I've always viewed Yusaku's idea for a boat race as being kind of a contrivance. It sounds like him, I guess. I mean, it's an opportunity for him to prove his physical superiority to Kasuga. It's an opportunity for him to showcase his enhanced athleticism to rub Kasuga's nose in his his own uh, failings as a man. So this is a good opportunity for Yusaku to emasculate uh, emasculate Kasuga. But of course, we, we, we also tend to flirt that way too, don't we? I mean, sometimes when we're flirting with someone that we have a crush on, sometimes we're uh, a little bit playful and sarcastic. And that might be what Yusaku's doing here too. He just wants to showcase himself to, to Kasuga as well. It's easy to view this as a contrivance, but this is actually the type of thing that idiot teenagers might do. Like, let's row to that island that we can see over there because we think we can do it. Not because we're expert at rowing. Certainly Kasuga isn't. And I'm not sure how much his karate talent is going to cross over into um, water sports, but I don't know that Yusaku is an expert either since he only wound up circumnavigating the uh, the beach that they were staying at. He didn't even actually make it to the island. So technically, Kasuga wins this one. He uses the power, but he wins it. It's funny, Yusaku wanted to impress Shikaru with this boat race, and of course, she's not impressed. doesn't go as he intended. It doesn't work out in real life for Yusaku the way it does in his mind. But on the on the flip side of that, Ayukawa does seem to be pretty impressed with Kasuga's grit in this episode. There's a close-up shot of her really seeming to kind of enjoy him as he's obstinately refusing to let her paddle, and he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be the only rower of this boat. But it doesn't really make sense to me that they would do a, a, a drawing of straws to see who rides with whom. That's the contrived part. It's, it's meant to get Ayukawa into the boat with Kasuga so that we can sequester those characters for the majority of the episode. Maybe Yusaku was the one who did the straws and maybe he orchestrated the whole thing so that he would end up with Shikaru. Maybe, or I mean, maybe the Shikaru-Yusaku boat didn't get what they wanted. Yusaku wants to be with Kasuga. Shikaru wants to be with Kasuga. Ayukawa wants to be with Kasuga. So Ayukawa got what she wanted. She got to be in the boat with Kasuga. So as a matter of exposition, Kasuga uses up all of his power as he's rowing to the island feverishly. He can't make it on his own. He uses the power in a subtle way that Ayukawa will not notice. But he exhausts himself. He passes out in the boat upon reaching the shore of the island that they were shooting for. Even at this early point in the episode, I'm noticing stereotypical gender roles in these past episodes, at least a little bit. Ayukawa seems to enjoy Kasuga's show of masculinity. He He's obstinate and refuses to let her row. He, it seems kind of cute to her that he wears himself out by being stubborn. There's a shot of her gazing down on him in the boat after he's He's rowed himself to such exhaustion that he falls asleep sitting upright in the boat. He passes out. Check this man's blood sugars, y'all. I mean, he could be hypoglycemic after all that work, okay? You might need to give him a shot or something. But she seems to think that it's kind of cute. I mean, she's a little bit bemused by that. She's not put off by the sexist notion that 
you know, he's a man and he must row because his pride, his manly pride rests on him beating Yusaku to the island. And if he allows Ayukawa to row the boat, then it, it uh, subverts his manly pride. She doesn't see any of that. She's not really looking at it from that point of view. She's just thinking it's kind of cute that Kasuga like insisted on being the man. On Kasuga's end, it seemed like he had really enjoyed Ayukawa's reaction to the spooky shit from last episode. It sort of reinforces this girlishness in his mind. He's able to see her as more of a, a young girl, a teen, someone who's his age appear because she has this somewhat irrational fear of supernatural stuff that really he doesn't. So it might be the uh, reduction in this perceived maturity gap between them that Kasuga is enjoying, but it could also be this sort of stereotypical, oh, she is kind of girly in this regard because she freaks out when she sees the bats and she assumes that the Koto is a ghost and stuff. So the last couple episodes, there are these kind of gender roles that are a little bit reinforced in this regard and that they seem to, the characters seem to be enjoying when the other adheres or conforms to these stereotypical gender roles. But then you have stuff like Ayukawa rocking shit at that wave. That's not a man out there proving physical superiority over nature. That's that's a woman out there riding the wave. So I'm not in any way, shape, or form calling Orange Road a sexist work. It's just funny how the, there's this play on these gender roles in these episodes, and sometimes it reinforces this traditional gender roles and then sometimes subverts them too. The gang is finally reunited at about the midpoint of this episode too. The twins and Takashi, uh, Kasuga Takashi follow up on last episode's exposition and they head out to the beach. They're going to try to link up with Kasuga and prevent any accidental teenage pregnancies. At least that's what's going through Kasuga Takashi's mind at this point. Of course, Komatsu and Hata, they got to tag along with really some kind of incredible timing. It really seems like a contrivance when when they open the door to leave and there's Komatsu and Hata just waiting to go with. It's obvious that the the authors of this episode are trying to shoehorn these characters into a plot in which it's very unlikely that they would have been included. So they just have to show up. But they're self-referential about it. I mean they they do the right thing in poking a little bit of fun at Komatsu and Hata's uncanny ability to just show up. They show up because the writers want them there, but Kurumi jokes that maybe they have the power too. It's just for hearing things, for overhearing things, and being able to butt in. Kazuya can read minds, Akane can use the power of suggestion to appear as other people, and maybe Komatsu and Hata just have a really specific other power and it is for showing up whenever they're not wanted, which I guess would be all the time, right? Showing up out of the blue, wedging themselves into a storyline that in all likelihood in a more realistic telling of this wouldn't, wouldn't have included them. Now, the last episode was kind of pared down character-wise when you think about it. We were missing the twins and Kasuga Takashi, except for the one brief scene that they appeared in. And we were missing Komatsu and Hata the, the entire episode. They didn't show up at all. Really, the only characters that we were dealing with were the main three, of course, Shikaru, Ayukawa, Kasuga, and then Yusaku was tagging along that made it a foursome. We had another big character with the, the character of the week, the Koto, the surfer. But 
Of course, she doesn't show up again. She's gone. We're done with her. But it makes sense that they're reuniting the gang for a narrative purpose, right? Bring these other characters back in because particularly in the first half of the episode, we can construct a lot of gags around them. We can uh, use them. We can employ them for comedic purpose. So there's a narrative purpose for bringing these characters back in. And the boat that the twins and uh, Kasuga Takashi and uh, Hata and Komatsu are on, it's shown as green with white crisscrossing striping in an establishing shot. But then in a wide shot of the boat, it's shown as white with green striping. So there's a little bit of inconsistency there. That's probably more of a goof, a little inconsistency. But that wide shot of the boat uh, serves as a transition away from the twins and and what they've got going on on the boat with their father and um, uh, the idiot, uh, the pair of idiots, and to transition back to Kasuga on the island as he's waking up from his uh, little nap post-power exhaustion. But what's really interesting is that even though they're bringing the gang back together and they're bringing these other characters back in, and it makes sense narratively, in some ways today's episode is even more pared down than the last. And that's despite the rest of the gang journeying to the beach. Because most of the action in this episode is just Kasuga and Ayukua. They're on their island, just the two of them. Shikaru and Yusaku are removed from the plot by circumstance because Yusaku is not as good at rowing a boat as he thought he was. He needs to reconsider his own shit. Take a look in the mirror, buddy. You're good at karate. You're excellent at breaking boards. You're not so good at rowing them. Okay. The inciting incident really just exists to get Kasuga and Ayukawa alone. And so in that way, this episode exists to explore Kasuga and Ayukawa's relationship in isolation from these outside factors. Like what would they be like without the triangle? It were just them, if Shikaru weren't around, if Shikaru weren't in the picture. So in that regard, it's also kind of like a glimpse into their future, right? It's, it's what would things be like between them if they were a couple? It's at this point that we see a lot of references to the Blue Lagoon. It's just the two of them alone on the island, cut off from the rest of the world. And, and that's the, the extent of it, Kasuga makes a reference to the fact that their scenario is like a movie he saw a long time ago. We assume he's referring to Blue Lagoon, which was released in 1980. 1980 wasn't that long before 1987. I mean, maybe to 15-year-old Kasuga it was, but seven years, not so long. I think of movies released seven years ago as like, that just came out, right? I haven't even seen it yet. So it's more likely that long ago is from the perspective of his voiceover narration some years after 1987. Regardless, he had seen Blue Lagoon, and so it's in his brain as he's enjoying an afternoon with certain key similarities to that film. That film was very, very popular, by the way, guys. So it's not at all unlikely that it was seen internationally and that it was seen in Japan as well. And it's an obvious reference point. I mean, when they write dialogue into the episode to reference the film, without naming it, of course, but they they write it in there to rep, uh, reference the film, you can tell they've seen it, they were thinking of it when the script was written. I like the idea that there's this idyllic island world that's just beyond the familiar shores of Japan that they know. It seems to symbolize that their happiness together is just beyond their reach. The idea of them together as a couple is is foreign, but it's only just beyond the horizon. 
This might also serve as a reference to 1982's Paradise. This is a, a knockoff film that was made after the success, the, the commercial success of The Blue Lagoon. They made a film called Paradise. It's a complete knockoff. That film, though, importantly, stars none other than Phoebe Cates, who you will remember is one of the inspirations for the Ayukawa character. So it's very appropriate to reference this film that stars the veritable likeness in, in real life of Ayukawa. And during their time on the beach, we get to hear some really good background music. I like it a lot. It's called You and Island Cafe. You can Google that, You and Island Cafe. Ayukawa seems to have dragged the sleeping Kasuga to the shore. I don't know why I thought that was interesting, but you get to see this these drag marks in the sand, and Kasuga, of course, wakes up underneath the shade of a tree. I guess it shows that she didn't want him to burn as he was napping. Like, if you just nap in the sun like that while sitting in a boat, you're going to wake up toasty. And her dragging him to the shade was kind of a sweet way to go. I can't believe he didn't wake up, but... She, she dragged him to the shore like she was kidnapping him and laid him underneath the trees, which was sweet. Kasuga's search for Ayukawa upon his awakening, though, gives way to this fantasy that he has very seamlessly. It's really hard for the audience to initially tell where the, the diegetic reality of this episode ends and Kasuga's mermaid fantasy begins. He just stumbles upon Ayukawa and sees her as a mermaid with turquoise-ish hair, and it's just on from there until... The real Ayukawa snaps him out of it, of course. It's a little weird that they've been marooned for like 20 minutes and she's already feeling the need to shower. That, um, I feel like that's like some day two shit right there. Like, feel free to take a shower once it looks like we're not getting back to the hotel tonight. But we've been here for like 20 minutes, maybe 15, I don't know. It hasn't been very long. It's weird that your top priority when you're marooned in the first hour of being marooned is like, I better go find a waterfall to take a shower under because I haven't had a shower in five hours. While we're talking about silly things, not grounding the rowboat was monumentally dumb. It's a very small light vessel. I'm confident that someone as athletically gifted as Ayukawa could have dragged that thing to shore quite easily and then it would not have been able to float away. They just left it tethered around a rock, still floating on the ocean. Of course, that thing's going to flow away. I really enjoyed Kasuga's impression of Yusaku. I thought it was funny. It was nice to see him making Ayukawa laugh. I mentioned in the previous episode that we got to see some good interaction, some good banter between Kasuga and Ayukawa. And it's nice to see that because so much of the time, so much of the runtime for Orange Road episodes is devoted to Kasuga being a dipshit and just doing something dumb, saying something dumb, getting his ass in trouble. So I like when we get the idea that Kasuga is good for her. He seems especially good at making her laugh. Whenever we see her at school or in um, public environments, she's always so dour, seems so serious. It's very uninviting for others, but Kasuga brings some much needed levity to her life, which I really, you see that here. You see that for her, he's one of the few people that can really make her laugh and get her giggling, and it's really very nice. 
we also get to see that Shikaru is a slave driver. She is absolutely miserable to Yusaku. We get this cutaway of her and uh, Yusaku still in the boat. Yusaku is exhausted from rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And she's not letting him rest at all. She is cracking the proverbial whip on this poor guy. And then we get Orange Mystery as an insert song for the second episode in a row. This is not the first time they've reused an insert song, but they really needed music to go with a montage scene. There's really very little dialogue. Almost no dialogue is used in their montage of Ayukawa and Kasuga's fun uh, afternoon on the beach on the island. So they need some music to go over this. Of course, the montage allows for the rapid passage of time. It condenses Ayukawa and Kasuga's day. They may have spent 10, 8, 10 hours on the island, but it, it condenses that to just a few moments or minutes of runtime. The, the activities are shortened down. And then it also reinforces that Orange Mystery is the definitive Kimagure Orange Road bop, which is my personal opinion as well. This song is it. But this montage isn't all fluff. It's not just uh, Kasuga jumping out at, of the bush at Ayukawa to startle her. It's not just Ayukawa putting a little flower in her hair looking cute like some um, island babe. The idea is that there's also some stuff in here that's important. Ayukawa builds a very symbolic sandcastle. Of course, the sandcastle is is symbolic of Ayukawa. Castles are defensive fortifications. Castles have walls, turrets, moats. They're primarily constructed to keep people out. Kasuga causes Ayukawa to partially smush her sandcastle during our montage scene while Orange Mystery plays. He bumps into her, kind of leans on her a little bit. She's not expecting it, and boom, puts her hand down, crushes half of her sandcastle. So Kasuga's already kind of forcing her to break down some of these defensive fortifications. And then we revisit the sandcastle visually, several close-up shots throughout the remainder of the episode as we see the sandcastle continue to erode, the effect that time has on the sandcastle for the rest of the day, that nature has the wind, the, the, the tide, the effect that it has on the sandcastle we get to see, and it's the obvious symbol here, is that Kasuga is having an effect on Ayukawa. He's able to wear down her natural defenses, her tendency to guard her feelings and prohibit other people from becoming close to her. He is able to subvert that and get around that. It's important that Kasuga busted her castle. This is art imitating their life. Kasuga persisted during the early episodes of this show, despite Ayukawa de deploying her usual defenses. Kasuga is the invading force. He's the barbarians at the gate. But the castle is only half the metaphor. Sand is also a symbol of time. Think hourglass, right? The sand's running through the hourglass. The gradual erosion of the remainder of the castle is a reminder that Ayukawa's affection for Kasuga deepens as time goes on. Kasuga isn't this dashingly handsome chap. He's not amazing at making first impressions. He's not the kind of guy that inspires love at first sight. That's not the kind of guy he is. He's the kind of guy who grows on you. Clearly, we're seeing that. And as much as I tend to praise the music in this show, there's some really good use of silence here as well. After Orange Mystery ends, we get what's called a pregnant pause between Kasuga and Ayukawa. The pregnant pause is when you see characters who are maybe thinking something but not quite saying it yet, and the delay, the, the seconds, the moments that you have to wait for the characters to speak to each other, 
uh, creates a little bit of tension. What are they going to say? What's going to happen? They're both acknowledging this this thing that they're thinking, and then then you have the dialogue. So that pregnant pause is a dramatic technique that enhances that bit of of tension that might be there. It's used frequently in entertainment, and it's used to really good effect here between Kasuga and Ayukawa. After they kind of fall down, they're they're lying in the shade, and it's a very kind of intimate moment with them lying close to each other. The shade is going. They're breathing hard. I mean, it looks like the type of moment that could quickly become intimate. There's a few cuts here as the two are silent. It creates uh, some artistic compositions of the pair. There's especially one that I want to mention with Ayukawa as she's gazing off screen and away from Kasuga. Kasuga is set a bit behind her, and you can really see that there's a little bit of inner conflict going here, and it's a it's a really very potent juxtaposition from just a moment ago when they were uh, enjoying this uh, blissful afternoon. They were playing and laughing and the sun was shining and everything was great and hunky-dory. And then suddenly they're back to reality bummed. It's almost like Ayukawa comes to her senses. They're not two kids stranded on an island. They can't ignore the outside world. They can't ignore their circumstance. Kasuga looks bummed when Ayukawa suggests that they return. But after a moment, he agrees. Again, kind of bummed. After Kasuga agrees, we get a close-up shot of his hand as sand is slipping through his relaxed fingers. He's got kind of a relaxed fist. His fingers are kind of loose. You can see that sand slipping. It's almost as if to say Ayukawa at this moment is slipping through his fingers. Like he almost, he was close. He almost... That time, the springtime of his youth, is progressing towards its inevitable end. There's still sand there in the hourglass, but it's it's moving. Time is marching on for these two. By this time, the search is on with the rest of the gang. Now that Shikaru and Yusaku have rejoined the twins, uh, Kasuga Takashi, Hata, Komatsu, those guys, they're wondering what's happened to Kasuga and Ayukawa. And this is one of the first times, this may be the first time, that Hata and Komatsu openly joke that Kasuga and Ayukawa are probably enjoying their privacy. Prior to now, their attitude toward Ayukawa was that Kasuga should stay away from her. And after that, they don't really understand why he hangs out with her. They don't really get what he sees in her. But now they're they're actually to a point of making full-blown innuendos about what type of things Ayukawa and Kasuga are up to at this very moment. Despite playing it off after Yusaku slaps the shit out of Komatsu and Hata, there's a close-up shot of Shikaru, and it shows us that she's still feeling anxious about something. Is she worried that her two favorite people in the world have just been swallowed up by the sea? Or is she reflecting on her inner fear or her inner suspicion that Kasuga actually loves Ayukawa and not her? There have been various signs that Shikaru is noticing certain things are off with Kasuga. Her transformation episode is a good reference. She specifically transformed in that episode to be more like Ayukawa. She even borrows Ayukawa's clothing to wear. Also in episode 15, where Shikaru becomes convinced that Kasuga likes someone else because he's being very inattentive of her in that episode. That's another episode where she suspects that maybe he likes someone else. Maybe Maybe he doesn't like me. So this could be building to a, a later 
date, you know, an end of the series, a series finale type of event that we might see in Anoshi. Meanwhile, we're shown some limits to Kasuga's ESP. He's unable to teleport all the way back to the mainland. This is likely due in part to his earlier overuse of the power in the boat, and he hasn't slept really. He took a short nap, but he hasn't eaten, so he hasn't done much to recharge himself. So it's likely that his power is still in a semi-weakened state, but I have doubts that his range would be much greater. His teleportations always seem to be just across town at most. You wouldn't be worried about the girl you like moving to America if you could simply teleport to America, right? I mean, if any spot on the globe was fair game, I would imagine that her moving to California wouldn't be as big of a deal. But here in this episode, he's still able, even with his weakened, diminished power, he's still able to demolish a very large stone outcropping to prevent him and Ayukawa from colliding into it as they're falling when, when they were trying to climb the rocks earlier, or Ayukawa was trying to climb the rocks earlier and Kasuga kind of saved her, which is a, a big event in Ayukawa's mind for the rest of this episode. Again, this is proof that even when his power is in a weakened state or he's in a weakened state, he's able to really pull it out of him. He's able to muster even more when Ayukawa's safety is on the line. As Kasuga and Ayukawa resign themselves to a night spent on the island, we see them huddled around a campfire in a shot long enough to include Ayukawa's sand castle in the foreground. I don't mean long in terms of duration. I mean that the shot is long, meaning the the camera is pulled back and away from the characters. So when describing a long shot, it's it's easy to confuse that with a shot that goes on for a long period of time. It's a long duration shot, but a long shot would be taken from afar so that you can see what's around the characters. You can view their movements as if you're a spectator from across the street or something like that. So long shot, meaning that the camera is far back enough from these two characters that you see them huddled around the fire, but we're also far enough that the camp, the um, we're also far enough that the the sandcastle can be included in the foreground. What they're telling us with this shot is that the sandcastle metaphor is very much on in this climax of the episode. Ayukawa seems to have become kind of sullen and pensive here. She blames herself for losing the boat on the one hand, and she's also holding a handful of sand, and she's watching the granules escape by flowing through her fingers, just as Kasuga was doing a few minutes earlier. It's possible that she's also feeling the time, their time on the island slipping through her hands. Maybe there was something that she wanted to accomplish on the island that, that she hasn't gotten yet. She could be in the very same boat as Kasuga, thinking that she was very close. She was so close. She's ruminating also on the risk that Kasuga endured when he saved her as she fell. This is a very meaningful gesture to her. She's thinking, why on earth would you save me like that? Then they share the apple. Aikua makes a point of biting from the same spot as Kasuga. She does it very deliberately, and she seems to be looking off screen at him as she's doing it, making eye contact with him as she's biting the exact same spot of the apple that he bit. It really seems very much to be an overture for Kasuga. Like, the night on the island might not go so bad for them. Ayukawa reminds Kasuga that uh, she asked to spend the night with him earlier in the year. It's the second time she's reminded him of that, and she previously brought it up in the spark-colored kiss episode. More than anything, that tells us that Ayukawa thinks about this moment often enough, as Kasuga does too. It's a moment where they got closer than ever to sealing the deal romantically. 
Ayukawa makes a cryptic remark about liking things the way they are now. It's similar to the Tanabata episode, she's encouraging Kasuga to try and maintain this triangular status quo with Shikaru involved as well. But these words almost seem like lip service to the idea that they shouldn't hurt Shikaru because we see a final close-up of Ayukawa's sandcastle. As it has completely eroded, the tide is washing over it. It is now gone. Ayukawa is at her most open. Kasuga might be at his most bold. And the firelight is just right, y'all. Ayukawa has already forgotten what she said about the status quo. He's moving in. She's leaning forward. They're just about to go for it. Then boom, rescue chopper. And boom, this is where I remind you to please subscribe to this podcast. Please tell a friend. Do you know people that like Orange Road? Chances are pretty good. I give it at least 98%. They're going to like this show too. So please tell a friend that loves Orange Road about this episode. Tell a friend who loves anime about Orange Road, then tell them about this podcast. I very much appreciate everybody for listening. I appreciate everybody who goes to Patreon to support the show. Patreon.com slash Team Almy. Please check us out. We post early episodes sometimes. I send merch to every tier. No matter who you are, if you sign up, I'm going to send you at bare minimum some stickers and a thank you card. Because I love you guys for supporting me so much. I also will be posting some really fresh content that will be Patreon exclusives for the foreseeable future. The chats that I have with other people, those chat podcast episodes, those are going to be Patreon exclusives for the foreseeable future. I'm also going to begin doing episode commentaries for every episode, every OVA. And we are also going to be watching Shinkor for my very first time. I've never seen it before. We're going to watch it live. So that will also be a Patreon exclusive. So thank you guys very much for checking out the Patreon. Uh, Patreon, those who do, uh, please feel free to subscribe. You'll also get access to my other show. Shit happens when you party naked. Also check out my other, other show, Creatures of the Night. That's a conspiracy theory, kind of kooky, wild, Bigfoot aliens podcast. So don't worry. We're not going to get into the QAnon shit. Don't worry. We don't get political. We just yell about zany stuff. I like to say wild shit on the internet. So check out Creatures of the Night. I'll leave a link in the show notes for you guys. And also, in honor of this being the last episode that we're going to hear, Summer Mirage, I'm going to hit you with B2. This is from disc six of the Singing Heart Squared box set. And uh, there's a little bit of a rendition of Summer Mirage here. So please enjoy. Enjoy. 